Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We all experience big, difficult feelings, from common emotions like anger, despair, and regret, to difficult experiences like the pains of uncertainty, comparison, burnout, and perfectionism. We'll never eliminate those feelings entirely. They're part of life. So one of our big tasks is, in a sense, to accept our humanity and learn to live alongside those feelings while developing tools that help us deal with them more effectively. To help us do that, I'm joined today by a wonderful author, coach, and content creator, Molly West Duffy. Molly is an expert in organizational design, development, and leadership who has helped advise and coach leaders and founders at companies including Google, Casper, and LinkedIn. She's the co-author of the best-selling book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work, and the recently released Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. And she's also one half of the fantastic Instagram account, which is how I first bumped into their work, Liz and Molly. So Molly, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. As I already mentioned before we started talking, I love your work, and I had a great time talking with your co-author Liz during a previous episode of the podcast. But I do have to say, I thought it was kind of funny when I read the title of your recent book, uh, which is essentially about hard feelings in the context of your previous book, which is titled No Hard Feelings. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just start by asking you about the context of all of this and maybe your own journey with this here. Yes. Well, you picked up on that exact thing. So we wrote a book called No Hard Feelings, which came out in February 2019. And the premise of that book was we all have emotions at work. We're all human at work, but we feel like when we come to work, we need to be professional. And so what do we do with those emotions? When do we express them? When do we not express them? And so that book came out. And then Liz and I both went through really challenging periods in in work and life. I was dealing with chronic health issues. I moved across the country. I was dealing with a deep depression. Liz was dealing with her father-in-law was dying of cancer and dealing with some work issues as well. And and so we pitched the idea for this book in January of 2020. And our editor, you know, who we love, and sometimes I tell this story and I think they think we're complaining about them, but we do love them. And they said, well, who's really going to want to read a book about difficult emotions? Like that's sort of a bummer. And we said, okay. And then in June of 2020, after the pandemic started, they came back Mm. to us and they said, actually, Mm. we'll buy that book. That's all that anyone is dealing with. Yeah, we would would love it. (laughs) So that's where it started. And to be honest for us, a lot of the book was, it was a book that we needed to read ourselves. And when we were going through Mm. these difficult Mm -hmm. emotions, I found it really helpful to read other people's stories about how they had worked through Mm. big feelings and what had worked for them and not necessarily to give like a checklist approach, but just to say it is possible to move through these emotions and, and hear some of the the ways that people have done that. Yeah, no, I love the framing of the book. And also just to offer, which I'm sure you would say as well, in No Hard Feelings, one of the things that I really like about it is that it's not about there being no challenging experiences, to be clear, if you haven't read the book. It's about yeah. emotional acceptance, which is just about going, look, this is a real feeling, and there are aspects of it that are challenging, but we're not trying to rank our emotions in different kinds of ways. We're not trying to do just like a positive psychological bypass, as you see happen a lot of time on Instagram or things like that, where we only name the emotions that we find easier, the emotions that we find enjoyable. And that's a huge part of this book as well, that emotional acceptance aspect of it. Exactly. 
Yep, that's the first step. It is usually the hardest step, <laughs> especially when we're we've never been through an emotion to this degree or or to this challenging level before. And when our society tells us that these are are not good feelings to have, and so we're like, well, how can I accept this? I shouldn't sure. even be feeling it. Yeah, and to mention the title again, it's telling that you went with something like big for me for this book now, rather than hard or difficult or negative as we're talking about right now. And is that because you're trying to avoid that emotional labeling? Right, right. So a lot of times the emotions that we talk about in the book are labeled as bad. And one of the things that we realized when we were doing research for the book, we talked with a lot of psychologists and therapists, and they said, we really don't think it's great for people to label emotions as good or bad. It's Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not helpful. But good or bad, I mean, they're they're just emotions. We have them. And usually they're trying to tell us something. So in most cases, they can be helpful in some way. One of the things that you focus on in the book that I really like is that positive flip side or the useful flip side of these difficult experiences that people go through, these big feelings. Was there a positive spin on one of them that really stood out to you when you started learning about it or reading about it? I think anger is a is a hard emotion for me. So my parents got divorced when I was nine. Anger is something that was scary to me. It brings up a lot of difficult things. I tend to be a conflict of averse person. And so I wasn't really mm. connected to a lot of my feelings of anger. And I think this is also due to how women, people who identify as women are socialized in yeah, our society, totally. of course. But when we did more research about anger, it was anger is about something that you care about being violated, which is just mm. fascinating to me that it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so this this really tough emotion for me to be feeling is telling me that I care a lot about something. And that was violated, whether that's myself or you know one of my team members if I'm at work or something that I want for my future being potentially violated. And it's it's information. It's a signal to us that, oh, I care a lot about it. And that actually has transformed my way of thinking about anger, you know, and dealing with mm. anger that comes up in my family and, and all these things, which is like, oh, okay, great. So, you know, this is, I'm, I'm in the middle of this. It doesn't always feel good, but this is telling me that I care about something. Uh, if you don't mind me asking about it, I'm always really curious about how people who create content in this territory and you learn something new, you learn it from psychology or coaching or talking to an academic in the field, wherever you, you just get good advice from a friend, whatever it might be. How did that change how you actually were with anger? Did it make you pay attention to it more? Did it make you feel more comfortable expressing it? Was there something that you were doing differently when you started seeing the more useful aspects of it? Yes, that is such a good question. And I will try to give it a good answer here because I think it's very easy to give a glib answer to this question. But yeah, and I appreciate that. So Liz and I wrote the book over the course of about a year and we were working through each chapter and each emotion. And so there's a period of time where we were doing research on the anger chapter. So I was reading a lot of books about anger and we were having conversations with experts and in the meantime, I had my own personal therapy. So I was meeting with my therapist every week. And so it started to trickle into some of my therapy sessions where I said, 
interesting. I'm doing research on anger and I feel like I don't ever express mm. anger and I have, I, I'm very uncomfortable with it. And my husband, when he expresses anger, I feel a little bit jealous that he is able to go there with his anger because mm. I shut down immediately. And I can see that it can be helpful for him to really identify with that anger. Obviously, you know, not yelling and screaming, but like it is a, almost like a escape pressure valve for him and that I don't have access yeah. to. And yeah, so we, I did some work in therapy around that of like, where did I learn that anger was scary? And of course it makes sense. I mean, if your parents get divorced when you're very young, that your caretakers, the people who you're looking to take care of you, your job as a child is to want to make sure that they continue to take care of you. And if anger is yeah. coming up, yeah. it's like, oh, maybe they're not going to be able to take care of me. And so then of course fear mm, comes mm -hmm. with that. But being able to, as an adult, reassure myself and say, actually, you know, I'm an adult and I can take care of myself. And sometimes mm. anger is an appropriate response to some situations that I'm in. And I don't immediately need to shut it down. And so we had, we had a lot of conversations, but I definitely am still working on it. I, it's, it's the emotion in the book that I think I have the least fluency around still, but I, I've made some progress. I think we're in a super similar boat for whatever it's worth. Like I am also very much an anxiety sadness person as opposed to <laughs> a anger person. If you uh -huh. want to kind of chart me on the emotional spectrum in terms of the feelings that I feel that I not even like feel comfortable with. It's just like have easy access to. I've always had kind of a yes. hard time getting an authentic contact with angry or irritated sort of feelings. I can go to irritation sometimes, but an actual like felt angry outburst is not in my lane by and large. And that's one of the things I've really learned from my partner as time has gone on, maybe in kind of a similar way where Elizabeth, who I've mentioned on the podcast in the past, she's my lovely partner, I, I would say has a has a little bit more easy access uh -huh. to those kinds of emotions than I do. She would be the first person to say. And not in like a way where she's having a lot of outbursts, but in a way where it's a real resource for her. Like it's an energy, it moves her into agency. She feels like she can do something about things. Often it's exactly like you said, it's just like getting fizz out of the bottle. She's been shook a couple too many times and she just needs to loosen the screw cap a little bit. And then all of a sudden she feels great. And she's like, yeah, I just totally, I regulated it out of my system. I feel much better about this. And there are definitely times where I feel like it would be great if I had a little bit more access to that. Mm -hmm. And I like the phrase that you use, like, how easy is it for you to access? And I think you're right. I think yeah. depending on how we were raised and what we saw modeled for us, you know, even if it wasn't, you know, that you went through a divorce, it's just like, you know, what your family of origin tends to model. Yeah. It's weird to think about like practicing getting angry, but that has been helpful to me. <laughs> totally right on. And I mean, particularly with just so much of the stuff that's going on out in the world these days, there's a lot to get angry about. And a lot of that, I think, can build up in people's systems if we don't let it out in some way, whatever your practice is around it. And that is not necessarily punching a pillow or screaming into the void, although I've definitely done both of those things mm -hmm. and would recommend from time to time. But uh, whatever that way of like getting that energy out of you is, I, I think that it can be a really useful practice. Absolutely. Yeah. So you really drill into each of these different big feelings. I named all of them in the introduction over the course of the book. But you also offer a number of big picture takeaways that I would love to start with, particularly in the introduction, and then you kind of weave them in throughout the book. 
Was there anything that really stood out to you in that process in terms of big frameworks of how to interact with these more difficult or big feelings? Absolutely. Yeah. So the first one we've talked about already, which is that big feelings are negative, which is something that I think many of us learn very early on. Anger, you know, oh, you're not supposed to feel like that or that's a negative emotion. And the thing yeah. is, like, they can be uncomfortable. They can even be unbearable. So I, the despair chapter, I talk about my experience with deep depression, even suicidal thoughts. And, and in, in no way am I saying, like, oh, that felt good. Like, it felt bad. It felt really bad and to the point where I was like, how is there a point in this emotion? Like, how can there possibly be a reason to be feeling this bad? But again, it's a human emotion. There's a there's a biological thing that's going on for us and, and they're not inherently positive or, or negative and they, they can be helpful to us. So I mentioned anger before. It can move us to take action on things that we care about. Regret can help us have more insight into how we want to make decisions differently in the future. So that's the first one. I think the other thing that we came across again and again was that if you are strong enough or resilient enough or positive enough mm. that you should be able to think your way out of these, you know, just cheer up, look on the bright side. And that is harmful for people who are in that because it's like already you're in a difficult space. And then to be told, yeah. well, if you were just stronger, you wouldn't be in this space it's like in Buddhism, we, they talk about this as like the second arrow. So the first arrow is like whatever it is that you're feeling. And the second arrow that you could hit with is like blaming yourself for feeling that. Yeah. And then, so when other people yeah. are blaming you for feeling that, like how can you help but blame yourself? Mm -hmm. And then, then of course, like structural forces matter too. So we talk about burnout in the book. And if you are working in an environment where you are not allowed to take time off and there's not a lot of resources and support, like, of course, you're going to feel burnout. And that's, that's not your fault. And then the last one is that your feelings are more intense than other people's feelings. That is another myth, which I certainly felt I was like, well, no one that I've talked to recently has been experiencing the level of depression and despair that I have been feeling. And so I'm alone. Like I'm the, I mean, I knew I wasn't the only person in the world, but I was like, you know, within my circle of people who I've come into contact with, like I am totally out here alone. And, and so many people feel that whether it's dealing with anxiety or dealing with perfectionism, that they feel that their own feelings are more intense or more volatile than other mm. people's feelings. And then that means we don't share them because we're like, well, I'm the weird one out here. And then we miss out on an opportunity to learn that, number one, other people have just as intense emotions as you do, most likely. And number two, what can we learn from them? How can they be helpful to us? I mean, there were so many things you said in the course of that, that I was sort of planting mental flags and to return to either to sure. comment or to ask you a follow-up question about them. There was a lot there. And the first thing that I just want to mention really quickly here gets to that question about why are these feelings useful to us? And one of the single biggest pieces of learning that I've ever done in this territory, learning my, from my dad about psychology or reading or whatever, are all of the ways in which the brain is and, and our emotional and psychological system is very wise in a lot of mm -hmm. different ways. It's not always helpful, but it's very clever in terms of how it uh, gets us to the places that it gets us if its value is on survival in a variety of different ways. So let's take something like anxiety. I've been experiencing some work-related anxiety recently for a lot of different reasons, probably attached to burnout, which we'll talk about a little mm -hmm. bit later. 
And it was really, really helpful for me when I was in sort of an anxious spiral recently to take a step back and go, okay, what is this trying to do? What is the purpose that this anxiety is trying to fulfill? And I reminded myself of what I knew about the ways in which anxiety is essentially a a hypervigilance coping mechanism a lot of the time. Your body is trying to protect you from making a mistake, so it makes you hypervigilant. It's on the watch for predators. It's trying to keep you safe at bottom. And sure, there's a part of me where my homo sapien brain can look at that and go, come on now, there's nothing actually to be that worried about. You have a very cushy situation. Your life is fine. There is no tiger that is about to come out of the bushes and devour you. And uh, my little monkey brain is going through a very different series of operations while that's going on. So I think that it could be super useful to flag those aspects of like what this emotion is trying to do for you, basically. And then one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was about the last thing that you were talking about, or really the second and the third things that you were talking about, both of them, that you should be able to think your way out of this, and I'm the only one going through this. Both of those speak to me about self-criticism and self-compassion, basically, how they're very self-critical myths that we have about these different experiences. And as somebody who has worked in a lot of very work environments, very type A personality, corporate settings, things like that, people who really want to do things right. And I was just wondering if you had anything um, that's either helped you personally or that you've seen help people with Mm. dealing with that second and third myth that we're bumping into. Well, after experiencing deep depression and despair, which is pretty, which is very closely intertwined with self-hatred and blame and feeling yeah, like you're totally. not good enough. I had to sort of rebuild like what I, mm. how I talked to myself and what I considered to be my worth because mm. so much of my worth had been built around being, as you mentioned, super productive, getting things done, being there for friends, being on track, like, which is a weird thing to say mm-hmm. as part of your self-worth. But I think for many people, it is like, I'm living my life as totally. I thought I would live it. And that is a big part of mm-hmm. why I'm a valuable human. And so there was a lot of just like obliteration of that. And then really saying, okay, you know what? I am still a valuable human, even if I'm on short-term disability right now and I'm not at work. I am still mm-hmm. a valuable human if like all I did today was lie in bed and go to the drugstore. You know, that that's Mm -hmm. like my husband still wants me to be in this world, even though that's all that I can do in this moment. And Mm. it's a really different baseline for how I judge myself now than I used to. And it doesn't mean that I don't have like type A and productive and, and perfectionist tendencies, but I do think that I had sort of a moment of like, I am really grappling with what my worth is and turns out at the other end of that like really dark hole, I still chose to continue to live and to believe that I had worth even when I wasn't being perfect to myself and and everyone else. And while I certainly don't recommend that anyone go through that experience, it was a very powerful experience that has like deeply shifted how I think about myself and talk to myself. And I think that even if you don't go through that, there are still ways to remind yourself of that. Liz talks about in the book how she was dealing with a lot of anxiety and perfectionism. And her therapist said, you know, think about something that brings you a lot of comfort. And she was house sitting a cat. And she was like, the cat is bringing Mm. me a ton of comfort right now. And therapist was like, okay, so 
what is that cat doing? You know, basically sitting on your lap, asking to get fed, you know, not a lot, but it still brings you so much comfort. And so can you allow yourself to imagine that you might bring that comfort to other people just by existing Mm. in this world? Wow. Well, that's, for starters, a profoundly touching story. That can be a real solace to people when things get particularly dark. There was a quote that I was trying to remember in that reminded me of part of what you were saying, Mm. and I I forget if it's from Steinbeck or Faulkner, it's from some, you know, great author of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. And the line is, now that we no longer have to be perfect, we can be good. Mm. And I think it's a wonderful line. I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, I'm sure. And kind of speaks to your experience, right? Where if your worth is all tied up in what you're doing, then it's very, very hard to spend much time being, for one. Mm. For two, it's the classic hamster wheel situation where you're just never going to be able to live up to the idealization that you might have in your brain. And if you're constantly falling short, that's not going to be very a very fun way to live life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's such a great story in terms of just the cat sitting on the lap. The cat's not doing anything. The cat's just being a cat. And yet, it's a great solace to people. And, you know, I think around the, the, the third myth that I mentioned in terms of being willing to open up about it, I mean, I am, and I very much was, a private person. And Liz and I talk about this concept. We do a lot of workshops at companies, and we have an assessment where people take an emotional expression assessment, and they mm. are either on the over-emotor side or the under-emotor side, somewhere in between. And I'm on the under-emotor side, which means that people have always told me it's really hard for me to read you. I don't know what's always going on with you. You know, you hold your your emotions close to your sleeve and all of that. And so I think for all of the hard things that I've dealt with previously, I was pretty private about those things. And I, you know, mainly just hold my very closest friends or my therapist or partner. And so going through this experience of writing this book has really forced me to open up about it. And and I have gotten so much out of that that I never would have expected. Mm. So it still is really hard for me to talk about it. And especially, you know, before the book came out, I had like a lot of sleepless nights of thinking about, wow, I'm telling a lot Mm. of personal stories. And I was less worried about like the general public, you know, people who I will maybe never meet reading about it. But I was more worried about like my former colleagues or my cousins, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, people Mm -hmm. who I'm like somewhat connected to, but like they had only seen a more pristine version of me reading about all the things that I had been going through. And, but what happened was so many people reached out from those groups, former colleagues, friends from college who I haven't talked to in more than a decade, cousins, and said, thank you so much for sharing this. You know, number one, I had no idea what was mm. going on and I'm so sorry to hear that. And like, I'm here for you. Number two, I also have been through some of these situations and I really appreciate, you know, you being willing to share that. So what I have realized, and I would be curious to get your thoughts about this, doing the work that you do is like, what a blessing it is to be on the receiving end of some of those stories. And I wish that like, before Mm. I had gone through all these things, like I had, I had been on more of the receiving end of, of some of those things because it, it just helps you feel less alone. And so I think about people like you, therapists who like, get access to how common all of these emotions are, much more so than like if you have a a different type of job. 
Totally. No, um, I mean, as you were saying that, it was also consistent with my own experience in a lot of different ways. As you'd probably imagine, Molly, I've been fairly self-disclosing on this podcast over time. Yeah. We're talking about emotions all the time, psychology yeah. all the time. I'm talking about my childhood. I'm doing it with my dad. Yeah. Like, it's a whole thing. And we've had a couple, once or twice, we've had clinicians on the on the podcast who have essentially dropped into something resembling live therapy with me. I mean, not like the whole thing. They were always very appropriate about it. But, you know, you're you're talking about real stuff with somebody else. It's natural for, for things to come up. So it's been very emotionally exposed. And at the same time, there's something about the nature of the medium where I'm talking to you right now and I'm aware that there are theoretically however many phantom people listening into it, but I don't have an experience of them sitting in the room with me. Yeah, And there's something I think that about the talking to a camera and a microphone and you through a screen and all of that kind of stuff where almost the, the separation itself can create an opportunity to be more free with how you're feeling about something. So those little bits of separation, I think, have made it easier. And because of that, it's been remarkably useful for me personally mm. to get to... A place of greater emotional acceptance in terms of what I'm feeling, and also emotional honesty and and sharing with people about the ways in which these are real experiences that people go through. You're not alone. And I don't know how much advice there is here because not everybody could just jump on a podcast or write a book or something like that. But at the same time, I do think that inside of that, there's a kernel of like, hey, there are little ways to express ourselves in the course of a normal day, even if it's just to a close friend, even if it's just you writing in a journal, whatever it is that you're doing, just having an opportunity to get into contact with those emotions and express them out in some way, I think is really useful for people. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's the small ways. It's it's opening up, you know, when you're like, should I tell this friend what I'm going through? I don't know if they'll be able to relate Yes, you probably should, you know, or <laughs> or just letting people in a, a little bit more, the benefits will be greater than I think we all realize. Yeah, and part of that is getting clear internally about what you're feeling exactly. And this is something that comes up in the book. I think it was particularly in the chapter on uncertainty, but I think that it's really a generalizable rule. This idea of emotional granularity. Uh, would you mind letting people know what that is? I love this term. We did not make this term up, but it is in in the psychology um, (laughs) canon. So this is about, instead of saying something like, I'm feeling stressed, saying, okay, stress can mean a lot of things. How do I use a word that is a little bit more granular? So in a work context, I might say, I'm having a lot of anxiety about an upcoming deadline. You know, to my team, I might say, you all know me. I really, I have a hard time with leaving things till the last moment. You know, is there something that we can do to make sure that we're going to hit this deadline? Or if I'm in conversation with my husband, I might say, I'm feeling like, to go back to our earlier example about the anger, I'm feeling Mm. like I want to express some frustration around this, but what's catching me is that I don't exactly know how to express that. And so some things are getting, you know, caught inside and I'm worried about, how you're going to react if I yell, you know, even though that's what I do, but all the, yeah. the specific words that you can use. And a lot of times when we're having a strong reaction to something, we don't have those words yet. Like if, if I'm just feeling mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. anxious or really frustrated, I don't have the words yet to say exactly what's going on. And so the classic thing is lengthening the time between the trigger and the response, but giving yourself time to go away and get really clear about what it that is. Maybe that's talking to a therapist. Maybe that's journaling. 
and being able to pinpoint it before you go back to the other person with whatever it is that so you can be clear. Mm-hmm. And this takes practice. So in a workplace context, one of the things that Liz and I always say is you can excuse yourself whenever you need to, and you can say the words, I'm having a strong reaction right now and I need some time. That requires no labeling, right? You're just saying, I'm having a strong reaction. And then you can come back to that conversation later on. But you absolutely are deserving of getting that extra time, even though people are going to be like, what's going on? You know, and mm-hmm. same thing in your personal lives. Like Liz and I, we don't like the advice, don't go to bed angry. We're like, go to bed angry because <laughs> most likely, <laughs> like the next morning, you will have a little bit more distance and clarity from that. And then you will be able to go back to whoever it is with more explanation. And I think, you know, the hard part is when people don't know what's going on when you're like, okay, I'm, I'm clearly upset, but I'm not saying anything. And the other person's like, I can tell you're upset. So while you're getting more granular, it's helpful to, to say, hey, here's what's going on. I am frustrated. You may be picking up on that. I need some time to think through what's going on so I can be more granular with this. So that's what's going on right now. So people know. Yeah, I think that this is very, very useful in a work context in a lot of different ways. And I think that it is maybe the essential skill in a personal relationships context, particularly a romantic relationships context. Uh, The ability to create a dynamic with, whether it's your partner or it's your parent or it's your kid or your whatever, where you can have a moment and say like, hey, that rubbed me the wrong way and I'm just going to need to like take a moment here without immediately leaping into, this is exactly the way that I feel, here's why I'm mad at you and you should feel bad is probably the most useful skill that I've ever developed over time. And of course, I'm still very much imperfect about it, but you know, we're all working on it. And just the ways in which that can give you the space to not immediately trigger somebody else's defenses also is a huge part of it, right? Because when you're in that heated moment, just as you're going to be coming in with some extra topspin, if you're having one of those big feelings, the other person is going to be coming in with a lot more shielding because they're going to have a reaction to that big feeling that you just tossed their way, right? So you're benefiting both sides of the relationship by taking a moment to get clear about how you actually feel. Yeah, very well put. And I think that one of the big ways that this shows up is with anxiety and fear. You mentioned that explicitly in the chapter on uncertainty how certainly I've experienced this. I was probably experiencing this last night where (laughs) your anxiety becomes this sort of unmarked territory of awful where you're just anxious about all of the things. And then you go through an actual process of going, okay, what specifically am I experiencing anxiety about? And then Rick has this process that he likes of once you've identified what you're experiencing anxiety about, what can you name? You go through, okay, how likely is this to actually happen? And how bad would it be if it did happen? Because a lot of the time what we find is that, sure, we have moments where we're, we're anxious about car crashing into us, and it would be really bad if that happened. But a lot of the time, our anxiety is about a work presentation, or it's about publishing a podcast episode on time, or it's about whatever else, some relatively minor interaction with a friend. And what we find when we investigate it is that it actually wouldn't really be that bad if the bad thing happened. Yeah, it would be annoying, it would be frustrating, it would make us feel bad for a short period of time, and then it would all be okay. And I think that that's one of the real powers to be found in that emotional granularity. I was wondering if you found that as well, and if you had any other thoughts on that. After writing a book about this, I can't say that I'm an expert in how to deal with my anxiety. It is a lifelong (laughs) practice. (laughs) But let's see, I think... 
one of the things that we learned in the research from talking with, again, a lot of psychologists and therapists was being able to separate the withins from the beyond. So it's similar to the thing that you just said of putting things into buckets. And this is like, you know, our need for control. <laughs> what, do we, what do we have control over and what do we not have control over? And anxiety is, well, the reason that it's so hard is that it's, it's fear about a hundred things at once. You know, if I, if I say I have a fear of public speaking, okay, well, I can tell you when I am going to be asked to speak in public and I can prepare for that. But my anxiety that shows up when I'm trying to go to bed is literally like, you know, running through a hundred different things in quick succession. <laughs> it's a lot harder to deal with. So yeah, I've lived that life. I've, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it's like, what is in my control? What's not in my control? And then for the things that are within your control, is there something that you can do about it right now? So I have, and again, this sounds sort of trite, but I have next to my bed, which is always when my anxiety spikes, I have, when I'm going to bed, I have a post-it, pad of post-its and I have a pen and I will just as I'm falling asleep and I get distracted by, oh, well, I didn't, you know, respond to that person's email in a timely manner. And suddenly I'm thinking about that person, you know, and I'll just write it down because it's like, yes, I do have control over that. But am I going to get out of bed and do that right now? No. So I'm just going to like go through what I can do about each of those things in the moment. Hmm. For the things that are beyond our control, this is a lot harder for me, but you know, sometimes visual metaphors help with me. I've been reading a book by Pema Chodron, who I love, called Start Where You Are. And Buddhism is so helpful for me in, in these visual metaphors of explaining to us how our brains are working and that like, you know, yeah, the, the anxiety sure. track that you get on will just keep going. And, you know, she had this visual of talking about <laughs> Imagining getting into like a spaceship that's leaving Earth and all the things that you're seeing, right? You're like seeing Earth, you're seeing the universe expand, all these things. And like what mm, your brain, mm -hmm, what your anxiety mm -hmm. is doing is it's sort of being like, what are you going to have for lunch? And like, do you have enough, you know, <laughs> like, do you have enough ingredients for lunch? And like, is that the healthiest option? And like, that's what your anxiety is focused on. It's just, it's such yeah. a nice visual metaphor because like... Yeah. Okay. Right. I need to get some perspective here about all the other things that I should, you know, yeah. I'm like leaving the, the, the orbit of the earth. So I, sometimes <laughs> things like that help. And, and in my moments of anxiety, I will have these books that I go back to. I'm a big reader. And so mm. like by my bed, I'll have these books about Buddhism and honestly, just like flipping the book open and like reading a little bit of it can help me reset out of some of those moments. Yeah, for sure. And that broader sense of perspective can be great for a lot of different things. It can absolutely help for dealing with a little bit of in-the-moment anxiety. It can also help to really drop us into a feeling of awe and appreciation, which I think is yeah. kind of a natural antidote for anxiety. There was the, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it right now. I'm so embarrassed. It's the new telescope, not the Hubble, but the new one. That James Webb, the James the Webb, Webb, yeah, Webb, James yeah. Webb. Mm -hmm telescope and it had the new images that came out from it i was very excited about this my dad was a big astronomy guy when i was growing up so i used to love looking at pictures of space and uh, they were just so cool and it was great to have a moment where you look at it and you're like wait almost every dot in this sucker is a is a galaxy wow you know that something to wrap <laughs> your brain around it can in, and that sense of scale sometimes yeah it can be a little overwhelming if uh, you're not in the headspace for it but if you are Wow, it just opens you up to this whole universe of appreciation and enjoyment and kind of mm -hmm. takes you out of that small self that is sometimes talked about in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. So one of the things that you mentioned just a second ago was this desire we all have for predictability, certainty to an extent, and really the word you said was control. I feel like I can control my environment, I can control my emotions, control my circumstances. Again, I have to imagine that you've worked with a lot of people in corporate environments or similar who really enjoy themselves, the illusion of control. And I was wondering if there were things that you had learned to do with people over time that helped them relax their attachment to that a bit. Well, I think... It's really hardwired. And so understanding that it's going to take 
a lot of practice to let go of some of that. And I think this is where a therapist or a coach can be helpful to point out some of the patterns around control that we see. So, you know, hey, you were really worried about this thing going wrong. You wanted to control every aspect of the launch of the product or whatever it is. And a couple things might happen. One might be that a thing went wrong that you never could have predicted or controlled. And so that tends to help us realize Yes, we think that we are in control, but actually we are not. Or none of the things happened. You know, you were totally in control, but but it didn't, <laughs> it was not necessary because, you know, actually mm-hmm. it went fine. So pointing out the sort of counterfactuals to our control narrative can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I also think I will say this to some of my coaching clients. I'll say, I hear you, but I have also worked with you for a long time. And I'm not concerned about that for you. And this can also be, Mm. you know, a partner or spouse or someone in your family saying that, you know, like, I know you're really worried about getting to the airport on time. We're going to be okay. I'm not worried about that, you know, for you. So it it helps people be like, okay, all the responsibility is on my shoulders. And so I have to control everything and saying like, actually, you know, like, I know you pretty well. And like, you've got this or like, I've been to Mm -hmm. the airport with you many times and like, we're going to be okay. Because we just t- tend to put so much of the control pressure on ourselves. Again, I think visual metaphors can be helpful. I wrote about this in the book, and I think about this all the time. Um, Anne Lamott is an author who I love, and she talks about this metaphor of having your sticky fingers on the steering wheel. <laughs> we all have this mm, need. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that actually makes our lives a lot more complicated because we can't let go of the steering wheel. Our fingers are too sticky. And we can get in these sort of prisons of our own making around control where we're like, you know, I was just dealing with this the other day with somebody who's going through a really difficult process of, of moving to a new state. And mm-hmm. they were like, okay, I have to control the exact date that I buy the new house and sell the old house and control all of the things that are happening with the mover in between. And ultimately they were taking an already stressful situation, moving is very stressful and making it so much more stressful for themselves by putting all these rules around what needed to happen Mm. by when. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes the question to ask is, who's creating these rules? Like, is it you or is it someone else? And a lot of the time it's ourselves. Like we're setting up these rules for ourselves, which don't necessarily need to be true. Yeah, this just comes up in so many areas of life, I think. Like, there are so many different metaphors for it. I've definitely been dealing with it recently in an entrepreneurial context, mm. where when you're creating something, anything, like, think about this in in any creative context, because most acts are acts of creation in different kinds of ways, whether it's work or it's your hobby or it's your your romantic life to an extent, you can think about it that way, whatever it is that you're doing. There generally comes a point with people when they become experienced enough inside of their discipline where their desire to do everything bumps up into their lack of time to do everything. Mm. And so they start to be in this really awkward position because they've developed good taste over time. So they have an expectation for quality, but they no longer have the ability to do that quality because they have too many tasks or they're stretched too thin in whatever it is that they're doing. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. And the only way to reconcile it, ultimately, is by taking the fingers off the steering wheel Mm -hmm. for a little bit. We can think about this in an entrepreneurial context in terms of like delegation, needing to work inside of a team, things like that. But I think that you can think of similar metaphors for a lot of other 
acts of creation. And for me, this idea of leaning into the rope has been really helpful, probably because mm. my dad's a rock climber. Just a, a profoundly useful for experience for me when I was a kid, as I was about 13 years old, and I was climbing top rope in a gym. And I had this moment where I just froze because I was just, I was, I was anxious mm. and tight and stuck. And my dad encouraged me and encouraged me and encouraged me. And he started to get a little exasperated as you do. And mm -hmm. it's like a kid and he's five feet above the ground and he's freaking out or whatever. And there was just this moment where he was like, Forrest, look down. And I was like, okay. And I looked down and I realized that I was like my height off of the ground or something. <laughs> I was objectively totally safe, you know? And I was like, Oh, and there was a little <laughs> moment in that where it's like a little pattern reset, right? And then he was like, hey, just lean into the rope. And so I took probably about 90 seconds, but I did finally take my hands off of the wall and I just hung there. And I was like, oh, okay, I am actually supported by this. So part of this is that it's not like quite exposure therapy. I want to be careful about terminology like that. But we have these little moments where we can find a comfortable space if you're a certainty person or you're a sticky fingers person. I'm definitely both of those people where we have these little opportunities to like find a way to lean into the rope a little bit. And that's been yeah. super useful for me personally. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to add that to my, my list of metaphors that I love collecting. The other thing I just want to mention, you mentioned, you, you know, you're not a therapist. I'm not a therapist, but sometimes medication can be helpful. And for me, oh, it for certainly sure. was. Yeah. So there comes a point where you're anxiety's turned up to like 11 and you just have tried everything. You're meditating, you know, you're doing all the things and it's still impossible to get off of that anxiety hamster wheel. And, and I had that experience. And for me going on medication, I went on a anti-anxiety medication was helpful in turning that down a little bit so that I could do some of that therapy work to understand what the triggers were for me at that point and, and work on them. But I just don't want people to feel like, again, it's your fault. We're blaming you and you have to figure this out. Like that can be helpful for many people. Not everyone, but some people. Yeah, I really appreciate that you mentioned that. And totally without knowing this, Molly, you've plugged a future episode of ours. We were planning on doing basically a whole episode about medication at some point in the future, basically talking about doing things in a safe way, being thoughtful about it, but really more the big picture ideas about the ways in which over time people have changed their relationship with whether or not like they should be quote unquote on meds. Mm. And then the emotional relationship that we have with that, where for a lot of people, it can be very anxiety provoking itself, understandably, to lean into using what we think of in the culture as like a very intense kind of medication, often ones that come with a variety of side effects that can be complicated yeah. for people. And that's a really complicated thing to be doing. But often these issues do have a physiological root. And when they do, wow, just tinkering with the mechanics inside of the system can be enormously beneficial for people. I mean, I have so many friends who have enormously benefited from being on antidepressants. And then I've also had friends who tried them and were like, nope, not mm -hmm. for me. And that's both really okay. But just to like open up the conversation about it and get comfortable with the idea of it. And maybe if you're the kind of person who's a little medication skeptical, as I've certainly was for most of my life, to just reframe your relationship with it and go like, okay, sure, this isn't for everyone, but there are some people who are really benefited by it. And hey, if I've tried other things and I haven't been helped by them, maybe I'm one of those people. And there can be kind of a place for that investigation. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm excited to hear that episode. Thank you for doing that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things, just to return to the book here real quick, one of the things that you do through the process of the book is you talk about these various myths that are associated with these big feelings. You named some of the general myths early on. You've got a whole bunch of others during the book. And I wanted to ask you, were there any that came as a surprise to you? And what I mean by this specifically is ones that you basically believed until you learned that they were, in fact, a myth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) a lot of them, the majority of them. (laughs) Well, we've been talking about uncertainty and, you know, there definitely was sort of a time in my life where I believed that I could have a lot of certainty about things. I think the pandemic has really blown that to shreds, which is good for many of us. Sure. On that same topic, one of the myths that we we bust is that your anxiety accurately reflects the risk. And you sort of mentioned that when you were talking about climbing Oof, and sort yeah. of looking down and being like, oh, okay. Yeah. But, you know, there's really interesting research. I love sharing this study where their researchers, I don't know why psychology researchers always have, give people electric shocks. It's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand why that is like. Oh, well, that's a, that's a long and sordid yeah, history right um, there. <laughs> but they're, they're, they, they told one group of people, you have a 99% chance of receiving a painful but safe electric shock. And then they told the other yeah. group of people, you have a 1% chance of receiving the same shock. And the two groups were willing to pay about the same amount of money to avoid getting the shock. So the likelihood mm-hmm. of getting hurt didn't affect their anxiety about getting hurt. And in some cases, it's easier if you just say, you're going to get an electric shock. And you're, you're, people are like, okay, mm-hmm. great. I'll prepare myself for that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, I think about that study all the time where I'm like, oh, okay. So I, of course, you know, this is, this is the same thing you mentioned earlier, go to the worst case scenario. But like, what is the actual chance that that happens. And sometimes when we're making those lists of like worst case scenario, it's like we put them at the same level where we're like, okay, well, I could get fired from my job. Is it the same level as my boss could yell at me? Is it the same level as my boss is actually going to be fine with this? Like as if those are the same likelihoods. (laughs) That was something that was was helpful to me. Um, You know, moving to, to a different topic, burnout, one of the myths that we talk about in that is that everyone's burnout looks the same. And burnout is used Mm, so mm -hmm. frequently as a word that it's become so watered down. Interesting research about burnout is that there's there's different types of burnout. And the the one that we think about most frequently is sort of being overextended, feeling like Mm. you have too much to do. But there's, there's also a type of burnout that comes from feeling disconnected from the work that you do or the people around you. There's a type Mm. of burnout that comes from feeling ineffective. So like I'm working really hard, but nothing is getting done. And so again, that goes back to the granularity and being willing to think about burnout as a more complex diagnosis. What are some of the more, the lesser known signs of burnout or the ways that it can crop up in people's lives that you guys bumped into when you were doing the book? So Watching for the early warning signs of of burnout is super important because the weird thing about burnout is that it affects our ability to know that we are burning out. (laughs) Like we're running on adrenaline and we're like sometimes Uh, feeling really good. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, I'm getting Mm -hmm. a lot of things done. I'm checking things off. I'm super busy. And we're not aware that we're slipping into burnout because we're not acutely feeling it. And then something happens like we get sick or we get something else added to our plate or something's going on in our family life. And we're suddenly like, oh my gosh, I have been running on almost empty for a long time. And now I really have to take a break. 
So some of the early warning signs, the one I love to mention is you would like to get sick, not COVID sick, but you're like, Mm, oh, mm -hmm. I would love to get a cold because that will actually force me to take the time that I need to rest, which is- You want to be taken off the playing field for a minute, yeah. Yes, which is really not a healthy place to be in. I've personally been there when I'm like, oh, it'd be really nice to get sick. But when you want to get sick, that's not a healthy place to be in. Other things would be you find basic activities overwhelming, going to the grocery store, doing your laundry. You're just like, I have been so busy all week. I just can't do these things that I, basic self-care things. You find everyone and everything irritating. (laughs) Again, we've been there. So watching for these early warning signs is really important. And I talk about this in the book because I experienced burnout after our first book came out. And I had been traveling a lot. I was working a full-time job and trying to promote a book. We were thinking about moving across the country. And then I got really sick. I got a cold, which turned into a flu. And I just knocked off my my back for a while. And so, and then I had to play catch up. And I was like, I just, I can't do this anymore. And it took me months to recover from it because it had been a slow, like it had probably been about four months leading up to the moment where I, you know, was sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm burned out. And I had to ask Liz to do a bunch of our commitments, podcasts, you know, workshops for me. Cause I was just like, I have to, I have to stop doing everything. And so that's hard. And many people have experienced that, but if you can catch it before it gets to that point, the recovery time won't be quite as bad. Something that I wanted to ask you about is this idea of being burnt out on something that you actually really love and appreciate <laughs> and enjoy. Because something that I've struggled with a little bit over the last month or so, I think, is burnout to an extent. Maybe a slightly unusual presentation of it, but burnout. And I think that one of the reasons that I've struggled with coming to terms with using that word is because I basically love what I do. I have a, by and large, joyful work experience. I'm incredibly privileged in a wide variety of ways. And I just have such a cool and unique opportunity to do this work that it feels a a bit, I don't even know what the right word is, a bit like unappreciative to say that I'm burned out on what I view objectively as an amazing job. And I got to imagine you were in kind of a similar place with that, that you by and large enjoy the work that you do and you've got a cool and unique and fantastic opportunity. So how did you reconcile those two feelings? Was there some some self-criticism or some judgment that came with that? Yes, and I, I would love to to hear more about your experience too, because I think we don't talk enough about this. We think about burnout yeah. as, oh, I'm working 100 hours a week in a law firm, and I have no control over my sure. time, or I'm you know frontline worker in COVID, and it's like, well, I'm not one of those things, then I can't possibly be burned out. Sure. But I don't know that I had as much judgment. I think it's just like lack of Mm self-awareness and Mm -hmm. until it really hit. And yeah, I was working for a great company, IDEO. I loved my role. I was writing a book. I was having a great time writing a book. I was traveling. I love traveling. And, you know, I think for me, it was like I had to strip away because I let it get to that point. I had to strip away so many things that helped me sort of see how much I had been slowly adding to my plate, even if it was things that I liked. And now coming out of that experience, I have set up much better rules for myself. So because it's things that I'm Mm. signing up for. So for example, I am much 
more diligent about my calendar and scheduling in breaks into the calendar. I used to allow mm, my calendar mm-hmm. to get back to back because I was like, well, I'm working a full-time job and I'm writing. Like, of course, I'm going to need to use all the hours in the day. And now I'm much better about looking at the calendar on Sunday and saying, okay, if I have a couple of days that are back to back, I know how I'm going to feel at the end of that day. And that's not being kind to myself. So what do I need to move to allow myself a little more wiggle room in the day? And so I will reach out to people and I'll say, I need to move this meeting back. And I feel I used to feel Mm -hmm. bad about doing that. I don't feel that bad anymore because most of the time people are like, thank you. Like next week works better for me too. And it's, it feels like this constant thing where you're like constantly having to cancel things or push them back. And you're like, well, the cycle never ends. And yes, the cycle never ends. And that's the thing about burnout is it's (laughs) like dealing with plaque or dealing with your car's oil change. There's not going to be an end to deal. You know, you might do it really well in Jan- in mm, June mm-hmm. and then you get to July and you're slipping again and you have to like, again, clear the calendar a little bit. So it's just being more realistic with myself about what I can accomplish in any given week and saying, I can't do that this week. I need to do that next week. It's not saying no, it's just not right now. And then having mm-hmm. rules. So Liz, my co-author is really good about this. She will say to herself, okay, I'm going to have one weekend day where I don't have anything scheduled. No friends, no family, mm. no work stuff as a recovery day. And when people ask her to do things, she'll be like, well, this is my rule for myself. I don't do things on Saturdays. Or, mm. you know, she, she has it a couple weeknights where she'll say, I don't do things three nights a week because I need that as recovery mm. time. She's done it to me. Like I've been in mm. town in San Francisco and I'm like, do you want to get dinner? And she'll be like, no, I can't because it's Monday and I don't do things on Monday. And I'm like, Oh, geez. Okay. But it really works. (laughs) So people respect rules. And so if you can set some rules for yourself and for other people, you know, and I think we make it out to be like, I have to stop doing this thing. Like for me, I've been like, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe I know I don't, I should stop writing books or maybe I should quit my full-time job or maybe I should stop, you know, all the other things that I'm doing. And it's like, well, no, that's a very black and white way of looking at things. You don't have to stop anything, but you do have to be reasonable about what you can schedule in any given week. Mm, yeah, totally. And it's kind of these two different aspects of it, right? Where on the one hand, you want to be really thoughtful about the extent to which you're extending yourself or overextending yourself. And of course, that's a huge part of burnout. And I would say for me personally, one of the aspects of it that I've struggled with is that extending myself part. But a lot of it's the emotional part as well, particularly related to that feeling of, wow, this is a really great job. I feel blessed and privileged. How could I possibly be burnt out on it? And I think that for a lot of different people, they're having that experience, maybe not with their work life, but with some aspect of your life and mm-hmm. a hobby that you really love. Raising kids, my goodness, is like the perfect example mm-hmm. of this. I love my kids. How could I possibly be burnt out? It's like, well, You can, I promise you, be burnt out even if you love your kids, even if you are a fantastic parent, because the experience itself is not what our system is really built for. It's exhausting. It has an enormous amount of friction associated with it, whether we're doing conventional 21st century work or we're raising a kid in a 21st century context. And I think that it's very easy to get into this place where we're constantly comparing our challenges to those of other people. And of course, we want to be really sensitive about this and appreciate this. And it's really appropriate for me, as a, a white guy with a middle class background, to look and a great job where I'm largely self-employed, to look at the field and go, holy crap, I was like Delta Royal Flush at the start of life. And I should appreciate and honor that in a lot of different ways without dropping into 
a minimizing of your own experiences just because, sure, there are certainly people out there who are going through more difficult things. And that balance has been has been a real dance for me uh, mm. personally and one where I'm very much still finding my way with it in terms of the appropriate balance of honoring both parts of it. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I do think it's so much easier to see this from the outside. You know, I look at you and I'm like, yeah, you're like running a small business and, you know, figuring out what comes next and all the things you have to do on social media and your newsletter and all the stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. Like that sounds exhausting. Mm-hmm. And yet yeah. we are so quick to jump to that like comparison and talk about this in the book of like burnout is a form of suffering and suffering is suffering. And it's not helpful always to compare suffering. Of course, there's people who objectively have it worse than you and me. Absolutely. But when we write that off and we say, I shouldn't be suffering, that's also not very helpful to ourselves. Yeah, you get to extend that compassion universally, right? Including to yourself. Yeah. So one of the things that I would love to just close with here, Molly, you've been very self-disclosing throughout this conversation, and I really appreciate that. Just at the end, is there anything that you learned in the course of writing this book that had a particularly big impact these days just in how you live your life? And I'm sure that the answer is a thousand different things, but I'm wondering if there was something that kind of stands out here. We haven't touched on this yet, but we we write a chapter on wrote a chapter on comparison. And yeah. comparison is something that is impossible to get away from if you're living anywhere with an internet connection. <laughs> and I, when I was in this period of deep depression that I talked about, I, I really struggled with comparison and I had to get off social media for a while. And again, it feels so bad. It's like, what is the point of like feeling like this negative about people who are my friends, right? Like I'm comparing, you know, this this person who I love deeply, like I'm feeling negative towards them because they're not experiencing what I am experiencing right now. And that's really hard. And sure, sure. Other people's lives seem or feel easy from afar to you when you're going through this really challenging experience. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about with comparison, but, but a thing that I think about most frequently um, in relation to comparison is that it can be helpful in helping me identify what are the things that I want. And Mm. so I talked about this in the book, but like I was dealing with infertility for a while and it was like really hard. And yet I, I sort of had to say to myself, the reason this feels so bad is because you really want this thing. And you know that you want this thing. That's not a surprise to you. But that's where it comes from. And so when you get that sort of punch in the gut, like you see something on social media and you're like, oh, that feels terrible. It's like, usually that's because that's the thing you want. And mm-hmm. whether you, you can take action to get that, that, that can be a helpful thing or, or not. In my case, there wasn't anything that I could do immediately about it. It was just like, that's a reminder of something that I want. And that's why it feels so bad. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is, Sometimes it's a helpful reminder to you of the mental space that you are in. So when Mm. I go on social media and I'm starting to feel bad, I go, this is a good reminder of like the mental space that I'm in, which is maybe I'm not feeling great about myself. And Mm. let me go deal with that. So rather than just like sitting in social media, it's like, okay, well, I need to have a conversation with my therapist about something that's going on because I'm in a hole or a spiral around this thing. 
Versus like when I'm feeling really good, I can go on social media and not have any problem at all. Like I can be scrolling and be like, great. I love, you know, I love that these people are posting these things. Like I'm happy for them. I'm happy, you know, because I'm in a good place. And so it's, it's almost Mm. like a barometer for my own mood, which is interesting. And then if, you know, if you could take action on that and then go work on your own mood in a weird way, it can be helpful, but that comes up quite frequently for me still, because in modern life, it's hard to avoid social media. Yeah, totally. And I think it also speaks to a little theme that has appeared throughout the conversation. A lot of it just feels like it gets back to getting really curious about our emotions and being open to if there is any learning in them. What am I actually feeling? Why am I feeling this way? And just that process of curiosity is really what you're kind of talking about there. Like you scroll through Instagram and you have an emotion. And you go, okay, why is this emotion there? And that moment, I think, is so profoundly useful for people when they're able to go from just experiencing the feeling to taking that little pause that you were talking about earlier, taking a micro step back and being able to look at the feeling and go, huh, why is this feeling there? And that's certainly been profoundly useful for me personally. Thank you for summarizing that. I like that. Yeah, super happy to. And also just super happy to have you on the podcast here today, Molly. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Forrest. I really enjoyed it as well. I appreciate your willingness to to go there and have these conversations with me and all your other guests. So really appreciate it. Today, I had a great time talking with Molly West Duffy about our big feelings the emotions that we find particularly difficult or struggle with in the course of a normal life. Things like anger, despair, regret, and then uncertainty, comparison, burnout, and perfectionism. We started a bit with Molly's personal story relating to these feelings herself, and I just want to say that I really appreciated how open and vulnerable Molly was throughout the conversation. It would be really easy to come on a podcast like this And we've mostly avoided this in the past, but there are certainly times where a guest comes on and they keep it very non-disclosing and kind of academic and what they're talking about or maybe a little clinical. And it was just really nice to have so much of Molly's personal experience forming the foundation, really, of what we were talking about today. We begin the conversation by talking, if I'm remembering correctly, about anger and about the ways in which the safe and heartfelt, in many ways, expression of anger can be a really useful resource for people. As we go through life, and particularly these days, frankly, it's really natural to bump into a lot of stuff that irritates us, makes us afraid, pisses us off, fills us with despair and regret. And to many of those feelings, anger is a pretty appropriate response and can actually be a very healthy emotional response that we can go through that can help us excavate some of those other feelings if we spend a little bit of time working through our anger associated with them. I shared a metaphor that I've been using a lot recently, which is this idea of letting the fizz out of the bottle. As we move through life, we're kind of like a soda bottle that's, or pop, I guess, if you live in the UK or I think Australia. We're a soda bottle that's been shaken one too many times as we go through the world. And we can have these little moments where we just crack the lid on the bottle a little bit to let some of the fizz out so that it doesn't all explode out of us in one dramatic outburst. And that's been a real struggle for me personally, frankly, to find the ways that I can contact the healthy aspects of my anger, frustration, or irritation over time, 
rather than just pushing it down so it seeps out of me in all of these little ways. We then talked about some of the big themes that come up throughout the book, and two of them are the importance of emotional acceptance and then avoiding emotional labeling in positive and negative terms. There's a reason that the name of the book is Big Feelings and not Bad Feelings, because while it's very natural for us to look at our difficult experiences as things that are challenging or they don't feel good to us in the moment, labeling them narrowly as bad feelings applies a lot of judgment. It moves us toward isolating ourselves in our experience, not wanting to share it with other people, and even feeling bad about ourselves for having the feeling in the first place. And one of the things that Molly highlighted that I particularly appreciated was all of the ways in which we can learn from these big feelings. They aren't just painful things that we have to learn how to deal with, although yes, they certainly have a lot of that as well. They can also be tools through which we can learn something about ourselves, about what we care about, and maybe even about the world around us. So if we get caught up in just narrowly calling a feeling bad, well, we've kind of cut ourselves off from all of the opportunities we might have to learn from it. And this took us to another big takeaway, emotional granularity, the importance of getting clear about what specifically you're feeling, or maybe particularly when you're feeling one of these big feelings, what specifically you are angry or anxious or sad about. Is it just a general malaise that you're feeling? Or is there something underneath it that has a source that you can point to? Often what happens for people is that these big feelings become completely unbounded in our minds. They just grow and grow and grow. I was having an anxiety experience, for example, the other night, where I was just sitting there laying in bed, and one little source of anxiety suddenly started turning into more and more and more anxiety. It became a very overwhelming experience. And I really had to lean on some of the tools that I've learned from interacting with people like Molly and other experts on the podcast about how to manage those big unbounded experiences in the moment. And thankfully, I was able to take a second, take a little step back from it, and get curious about the emotion that I was experiencing. I worked to start to get a little granularity around the experience to get specific about it. And from there, I was able to move into, okay, what would it be like if the thing that you're anxious about really happened? How bad would it be actually? And then from there, how likely is it that this thing actually happens? And as I was able to get more granular about those feelings, I felt my anxiety start to dissipate a little bit. Not entirely, to be clear, but a little bit, enough to give me some relief. We also talked for a while during the conversation about certainty and learning to deal with uncertainty. And this particularly related to the feeling of control, which is something that I think most people really want in their lives. They want to feel like things are predictable. They want to feel like they can control their outcomes. Heck, I talk all the time on the podcast about agency, which is itself feeling your feeling of control and influence that you can have over your life. But there's a really important balance there, right? Because yes, on the one hand, we definitely want to feel like we are, at least to an extent, the author of our destiny. And at the same time, we have to take the sticky hands off the wheel or lean into the rope or choose your metaphor of choice and release that feeling of intense, driven control over our outcomes. Because the truth is that even for the things where we have a lot of influence, we do not have all of the influence. And that has been something that I've really had to come to terms with personally in my life. At the end of the conversation, we talked a little bit about comparison, and Molly named a 
hidden opportunity to be found in comparison, where it's very natural to think of comparing yourself to others as just a bad thing, again, that we shouldn't do with all of that emotional labeling, with all of those negative words attached to it. But it can be really a kind of dousing rod, a, a compass toward what you really care about. And you want to be a little careful with this, right? We don't want to get into this clinging attachment to some lifestyle or some life or some job or some whatever, but we can use it as a way to identify our true wants, our true values, and our true desires in life. And sometimes there's nothing that you can do about a desire or value that you have in the moment. But just speaking personally, it can still be really valuable to get clear about what it is that you care about. Again, really enjoyed having this conversation with Molly today and really appreciated her vulnerability throughout it. Her recent book is Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. And she's also one half of the wonderful Instagram account. It's at Liz and Molly on Instagram. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. Maybe leave a rating and a positive review if that's something you can do on that platform. And hey, you could always tell a friend about the show. It is probably the best way we have to reach new people. Also, as a quick reminder, we publish all of these episodes these days onto my YouTube account. And if you'd rather watch this episode rather than listen to it, you can find it through the link in the description of today's episode. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return including expanded show notes where I go into all of the research, the ideas, the prep that I do for each episode, and I expand on a lot of the things that we talk about during the course of the show. Once again, thanks for listening today, and I'll talk to you soon.